I'm excited to bring a message uh, to you today from the Gospels, which we've been going through for um, this year, and we'll go through for um, the rest of the year and then half of next year, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in harmony. That's the goal, is to kind of harmonize them. And I want to begin this message by asking you this question. Does anyone here like taking tests? No? Just the words. Just the word test probably brought you some anxiety. I used to say that having been a school teacher, high school teacher for 16 years, sometimes I would just get their attention by saying, we have a test today. What? What? Test? You said it was a quiz. (laughs) I'm like, what's the difference, you know? But I would mess with them. But no pressure this morning, but I I do want to give you a little test. I think it will be fun for many of you and maybe it'll encourage some of you to get into the Bible more and read it more. It's just a little test. Just so you know, your salvation does not hinge upon any right answer on this particular test, okay? You are saved by the blood of Jesus. We celebrated communion. You know that, okay? It's okay. If you get them all right, all right, there's no trophy. There's no award. I'm sorry, Generation Y and Z. All right, I know you like trophies for everything, all right? But there are no trophies for getting any right answers. Here's the test. How well do you know the 12 disciples? How well do you know the 12 disciples? I'm going to ask a question. You can shout out who that disciple is. Okay? And if you're the first one to shout it out, don't do it for every question. All right? Don't be that kid. All right? That that has to blurt out the answer before everybody else can even think about it. All right? If you get one before anybody else, let somebody else get one first. All right? Even when I say that, sometimes it doesn't work. We'll see. All right. Here's the first one. Who is the main spokesperson for the 12 disciples? We're just talking to disciples, just the 12 disciples. Who is the main spokesperson for the 12 disciples? Peter. Good job. I heard it. Peter. You can keep shouting out answers. I should have multiple choice. I should just put them up there for you. But I think you're going to get them. Who betrayed Jesus? Oh, you know that one. Okay, Judas. Now, there were two. So this is Judas Iscariot. Who was a tax collector? Matthew. That's right. Matthew was a tax collector. Who doubted Jesus was alive after the resurrection? Thomas. Good. You know that one. Who thought nothing good can come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel. Very good. Nathaniel. You've got to say them a little louder if you know it. Who was a zealot? Who was a zealot? Simon, very good. Simon the Zealot. Who are the sons of thunder? John and James, the sons of thunder. What or which disciple said he was the one Jesus loved? John, that's how he ended his gospel. And the last two are important for us today. Who brought Simon Peter to meet Jesus? Who brought Peter to meet Jesus? His brother, Andrew. And then the, harder one, the hardest one, I think, who needed to see the Father to believe? Who needed to see the Father to believe? John 14. 
Throw a guess out there. Last one. You're all out of disciples. Philip. Philip is the one who needed to see the Father to believe. All right, you all did a great job. Raise your hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. Come on, participate. There you go. Reach back. All right, pat yourself on the back. Good job. Good job. Proud of you. Now, some of you are like, man, i got to start reading my Bible. And that's good, because we have free Bibles for you if you don't have one. Grab one by the TV back there. They're free. If you're a guest of ours, we have free coffee cups, too, and a little pamphlet of information if you'd like to check that out. We're going to learn about Andrew and Philip today a little deeper, maybe, than you knew about them. Some information about them, kind of their character, what kind of people they were. What is the purpose of testing, though? Why did I give you guys a test? What's the purpose of testing? Well, teachers, and there's teachers in the room, teachers know that we test, or you test, because you need to know what your students know. Right? You've got to give them a grade. Some think that testing the purpose is so teachers can use those red pens. I hate those red pens. Don't you hate those red pens? But testing in life, in your faith, is not so God can know what you know. God knows what you know. So therefore, testing is actually so you will know. Just let that sink in. Testing is so you will know. And if you fail a test, no worries, God will give you another test just like it. Again and again and again until you get it right. And God is very patient, right? Why does he keep testing you? Because he wants you to pass. What does it mean to pass the test? Trust. The word faith means trust. You trust God. So when you face your impossible situation, which our title is up on here on the screen, what's your impossible? Trusting God is the way you pass the test. God will test your faith so you will trust him completely. Testing of your faith comes so you know where you're at and so you'll trust him more and more. Impossible scenarios come up all the time in our lives, don't they? You agree? Just uh, last night, I, uh, as a pastor, I get random phone calls, oftentimes, people calling the church. I got a phone call from a woman who was desperate. Listened to her voicemail. I was visiting with family, so I let it go to voicemail. She was calling churches for help. Her voicemail said she felt like she wanted to give up. Well, that's a serious call, right? I've got I to gotta respond to that as soon as I can, as quickly as I can. But as I thought about it, immediately this sermon came to mind. This is an impossible situation. How am I going to fix her problem? I don't know this person, but she wants to give up. How am I going to do that? God, what are you going to do? My immediate thought was, I can't do this. I need to trust God. God has to do it. God has to to make a way where there is no way. And I called her back, and we worked out a solution. Many of you have impossible situations in your lives. Staying sober, saving your marriage, not getting foreclosed on, making rent, beating cancer, 
getting along with our coworkers, and I doubt that covers even a tenth of it. Many of us have impossible situations. What's your impossible? What do you need God to do that only God can do? Oftentimes I think about my impossible as a leader of God's church. This isn't my church, this is God's church. And I'm one of the leaders here and I think about what God wants to do here in this church. And one of the things that I think is an important step for people in their faith is to get baptized like Jesus. And so I'm always praying that people will want to be baptized like Jesus, immersed underwater. It's a step of faith. It's something you publicly do to profess your faith. And so in 2021, I'm praying for 21 baptisms. And we've had about half that so far this year, but I'm praying. And and to me, it's, I think of it like this is, I can't make it happen. Right? This is an impossible situation for me, but not for God. What is God doing in our lives? And I'm praying for that. I'm also praying that God would, would have five small groups begin in this church. Because I believe when we get together outside of Sunday morning, when we get together in a small group and we meet regularly, We surround ourselves with godly people, I think it really helps our spiritual growth. It really helps us get closer to God as we get closer to one another. And so that's something I'm praying for, five new groups. I'm always praying God's going to grow our church because I believe our community needs Jesus more than ever. Do you think that? Do you think God is needed? I mean, you just look at your neighbors, you, you know, I was talking to one person in our church and she was talking about the people that live on her street. And I'm like, man, your street needs Jesus. <laughs> our community needs God. Our community needs Life of Purpose Church to be the church, to be the body of Christ. A couple years ago, I started praying for Life of Purpose to grow, and I based it on the passage we're looking at today. My prayer was based on the fact that Jesus took a boy's lunch of five barley loaves and two fish, and he fed 5,000 men. And I've been praying based on that prayer because my feeling is if you can do that, God, then you can take a church of 100 people And you can feed 50,000 the Word of God. Because that's what people need. They need God's Word in their life. They need direction. They need hope. They need Jesus. And I'm trusting God because that's my impossible. What's yours? What's your impossible? That's what we're talking about this morning. Will you pray with me? God, help us to see that you are not a religion. You are the one true God. And that we need to trust in you. That you care about our stuff. The things going on in our lives today, you actually care about them. You're concerned about them. You want to fight our battles. You love us. 
and we need to trust you. God, as we think about how you're testing our faith, may we lean on you. Lean on your understanding, not our own. God, make our path straight this morning. Help us to have ears to hear so we can worship you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we're in the life and ministry of Jesus. We're in really the beginning of year three. Isn't that exciting? It took us about eight months now, seven months actually, to get through the first two years of Jesus' ministry. Kind of his birth, we started there, and we're in year three, beginning of year three. So if you want to kind of understand Jesus' ministry, it's a three and a half year ministry. The first year and a half is the year of preparation. He was kind of preparing to go out and minister and, and speak and teach and heal and and do all that he did. Year two, the year of fame, the year of popularity, if you will. He, he got real famous real quick because he was healing people and his teachings. That's what Matthew shows us. In year three, though, is the year of opposition. It starts off, Jesus is now so famous, so popular, that he can't even really go into a town without being mobbed by people because of his power to heal and his teaching. That now... He's actually going to head down this road of opposition that's going to end on the cross where he is crucified, really, by the Jews, his own people, carried out by the Romans. So I was reading through the Harmony of the Gospels again, Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reading through it simultaneously, but yet chronologically, and I'm reading through it, and when you you read through it, you, you, you might realize and maybe if it's just you read the Gospel of John, you'll realize this, but John really doesn't talk too much about Jesus' first couple years of ministry. In fact, I just kind of give you just an understanding of it. In John 4, you have the Samaritan woman at the well. Big story about the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, John's purpose in writing his Gospel, by the way, is so that we will believe. That's what he says in John chapter 20. So we'll believe. And he, car- and he gives us signs, seven signs throughout his gospel. So we will believe. Seven things Jesus did. So we'll believe. But you look and you see John 4, the woman at the well. That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Then three months go by, and now you're in John 5. In John 5, he heals a paralytic on the Sabbath. But then a year goes by when you start reading John 6. And after John 6 which is what we're going to look at today, the miracle of the five loaves and two fish. Six months goes by, and then it's John 7. So it's it's interesting that John doesn't talk too much. His main focus ends up being in the last year, the last week, really, of Jesus' life. But it's John 6 that I want to talk about today, because out of all the miracles that Jesus did, there's only one miracle that all the Gospels talk about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about the five loaves and the two fish. And John gives some really great details in John 6, which I'm going to get to in a second. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to John 6. Many sermons have been preached on this miracle. Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon preached on the five loaves and the two fish. Okay. I bet if you got ten preachers and gave them the assignment, maybe this was seminary, okay? In seminary, you know, you have to prepare sermons. And if you had ten different seminary students prepare a sermon on this particular passage, my bet is you'd get ten different sermons. 
10 different sermons. There are some that, that like to, unfortunately, explain away this miracle. They'll tell you that Jesus taught the people that were there to share their meal, their food. And so they shared with one another, and that's how he fed 5,000. That's not what happened. There are some that love to make a big deal about the numbers. Five loaves, two fish, right? Twelve baskets of leftovers. Look, at I like math. I taught it for 16 years, but it's not about the numbers. What is this about? See, when you preach the Bible... You've got to get the meaning right. What did the author mean? Why did he write it? Now, the application there could be lots. But the meaning of this is to test the disciples' faith. It's a testing of their faith. And that's my focus for you. Testing your faith, because you will be tested. Jesus tested his disciples' faith. They failed, by the way, which hopefully is comforting to you. It's comforting to me. I fail all the time when it comes to testing my faith. Failing is normal. Testing your faith is normal. Our goal here is to learn from these disciples and know how to respond. At the end, I'll tell you how they should have responded to the test. So we're in John 6, verse 1. Are you ready? Say, we ready. All right. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. There's three different names, actually, for the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So he has this huge following. Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down with his disciples. And the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So I don't have a map for you to look at, but you know, just say like the Sea, the sea of Galilee is kind of shaped like my hand, okay? So they're like right here in Capernaum, and he's done a lot of miracles here. And they get into a boat, and they travel across the top part of the Sea of Galilee over here to Bethsaida, which is actually where some of the guys were from, Peter, Andrew. And all the people didn't have boats, so they just ran, walked along the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Does that make sense to you what they were doing there? So, like, they're here, and they're following him. So they're going over here. Now, Jesus um, goes up on this mountain on the other side, if you will, and he sits down. And the Gospels, if you take all of them and you read the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see, like, there was a full day of ministry. Jesus was healing, teaching, and, and it's at the end of the day, and they're all tired, and... The disciples suggest to Jesus, send these people away, let them go get some food. And I know you, if you ever think about how the disciples had a lot of sidebar conversations, right? I'm sure they had lots of time to talk amongst one another. And they're probably thinking, I'm tired, man. This is busy, right? Let's, let's get these people out of here. Let's get some food for Jesus and, and, and let's just rest. But here comes the test, right? The test is, verse 5, Jesus lifting up his eyes, seeing this large crowd of people coming toward him that were there, and Jesus says to Philip, only John gives us this detail, that Jesus says this specifically to Philip. You'll find out why he said it to Philip. 
Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? By the way, 60% or something like that of their diet was bread. Okay? Probably the same with you, right? (laughs) People love bread. All the Italians said amen. All right. We love bread. So he said this to test Philip and his disciples, for he himself knew what he would do. Now don't miss that. Don't miss this important truth. He himself knew what he would do. What's your impossible? God already has a plan. Whatever it is, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's impossible to you, let that sink in. God already has the plan. That's amazing when you really think about it. Whether it's your marriage, your job, your health, I don't know what it is, God already has a plan. Say, God, you have a plan. And if you mean that, it's life-changing. God, you have a plan. For my situation, you have a plan. It's very humbling. Here's verse 7. Here's Philip's fail. He already had the plan. He already knew what he was going to do. But Philip says, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now, this helps us get an understanding of the kind of man Philip was. Who was Philip? Well, he's like me. He loves numbers. He loves numbers. Is math your thing? Science? You like that? Because that's my thing. I love to figure out things in my head. My wife knows this. I do this all the time. And this is what Philip did. Jesus presents Philip with this impossible scenario, testing his faith. It has nothing to do with about how much money it would take to feed all of these people. But yet, Philip can't help himself because he's a science guy, he's a math guy, and he's going to think about it and he's going to figure it out in his head. He counted the people. This is what I would have done. In this little square over here, he counted the people and he figured out how many people there were in that little square. And then he looked out and he counted all of the squares and he multiplied those two numbers together. And then he took the cost for bread because he knew that for one person to have a little bit of food. And he multiplied that to the total number of people. And then he had that ridiculous number in his head, divided it by the value of the denarius, which is basically one uh, day's worth of, of, uh, of work, and the rough estimate of 200 denarii to give everybody a little bit of bread came to mind. Let me tell you what that means today. One denarii is a day's wage. The average daily wage today in our area is $200. Philip was basically saying to Jesus, after he did all the math in his head, Jesus, $40,000 would not be enough to give everybody just a little bit of food. And by the way, two other impossibilities. Judas, who we know carried the kind of bag of money, right? We, We heard that later on. Judas didn't have $40,000 in his bag. And no bakery had $40,000 worth of bread. It's an impossible situation. But yet, Philip 
fails the test because he tries to figure out how to make it happen with the numbers. Philip's a, a, a pragmatic kind of guy. He, he needs to make sense of things. He needs to use his senses to believe. He needs to see to believe. In John 14, verse 8, he says to the Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, how long have you been with me, Philip? You still don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Philip was like, i got to see the Father. He failed the test not once, but twice. So don't feel bad if you're like Philip and you fail the test. God will test you again and again and again until you get it right. If you don't trust God today, he's going to give you another opportunity tomorrow and the next day and the next day until you trust him. That was part of the thing, isn't it, with these 12 disciples? Jesus walked with them for three and a half years. Maybe it'll take you six and a half. Maybe it'll take you less. But God wants you to trust him. Now we turn to Andrew. Andrew's going to get a test. All the disciples heard the predicament. They heard the situation. They understand the impossible scenario that they're in. And Andrew, verse 8, Andrew says, who is Simon Peter's brother, there is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, they, but what is that for so many? Now, you may not know much about Andrew other than he's Simon Peter's little brother. We hear all about Peter because Peter's the one, as I said earlier, he's the one who does most of the talking for the disciples. Now, when we have that quiz again someday, you won't get that wrong. Right? Peter did most of the talking. In fact, I heard one person say that the only time when Peter opened his mouth, it was just to switch feet. He often put his foot in his mouth with the things that he said. So Peter is kind of well known. Andrew, not so much. How many of you are the younger sibling and you're kind of known as, oh yeah, uh, I'm so-and-so's little brother. I'm so-and-so's little sister. Right? This is Andrew. But Andrew actually is very well known now. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, he's the patron saint of Scotland. The patron saint of Scotland. So they would say, Peter's word, or Andrew's words, Lord, there is a wee laddie here and he has five loaves of bread and two wee fishes. Yes, I know, I have to work on my accent. But it's crazy that out of all the people in the crowd that Andrew could only sniff out two fish and five loaves of bread. The reason why they didn't have any food is because, like I said, they were here and Jesus went and they just went. They didn't go home to pack a lunch. There was just one boy with a very smart mama that packed a lunch And he went, and that's all they could find. But Andrew fails the test like Philip. Because his solution isn't spending money, it's to steal a poor boy's little lunch. Jeez, Andrew, he's just a kid, man. But what kind of person was Andrew? What what was his, his kind of way of life? Well, he's a people person. When you look at all the situations in The Gospels of Andrew, you see he's a people person. He loved to network and connect people. 
He's the kind of guy that you meet at a party and he just drops name after name after name. You know those kinds of people that know everybody? Oh, I was at lunch with Jeff Bezos. Yeah, Mark stopped by our table. You know Zuckerberg. Yeah, he invited us to Elon Musk's party, but I told him I couldn't really make it because I had a conference call with Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and then we're heading to the Kardashians to chill with Beyonce and Lady Gaga. Some people just know all the people, right? That's Andrew. He connected people. He's the one who introduced his brother to Jesus, John 12. It tells us that. But even with all his connections, Andrew could not come up with a solution to feed 5,000 men. And so here we are, with five loaves and two fish. Now, you've read that before probably, or you heard about it. What did you picture when you picture five loaves and two fish? This is what I picture. You see it on the screen here. I picture five Jimmy John-sized loaves of bread and... Two fish, probably maybe even you know, bigger than that. I think those are tilapia or something. Is that what this little boy was carrying around? No, he wasn't. But I don't know. That's what my mind goes to when I think of a loaf of fish. So this wee little laddie isn't carrying that around. His, his mama said before he left the house, what did mom say before you leave the house? Did you brush your teeth? Very good. And don't forget your lunch. Okay? So he got his lunch, and his mom packed for him. You can see a picture on the screen, and I got, even got a little thing here. He got a little, a little barley loaf, about that size, five of them, and two fish, probably sardines, all right? And the, the fish was really just to kind of spread on the bread. Give it a little bit of flavor. So it's this little, little lunch, enough for, for this boy. Two, two sardines, probably, and five little barley loaves. Barley is the grain of the poor, by the way. So these were poor people following Jesus. And remember, Jesus, John says this is the, when the Passover meal was at hand. These people probably didn't even have the money to celebrate this meal. But this little boy has five pitas, two fish, Crazy to think that his mother packed him a lunch, and that lunch fed 5,000 men. Which brings me to a very important truth. God's plan involves what you already have. God's plan involves what you already have. Just think about that. God, use what I have. Say that with me. God, use what I have. Because that's what he'll do. He's already got the plan. And he'll use what you have. He used what this little boy have. I told you I've been praying for our church to grow. And it's this very verse that I wrote down in my prayer notes. Verse 9. That God... There's a boy with two barley loaves and two, or five barley loaves and two fish. And you can take our church of a few people and you can reach a community of people. And I pray this because I believe God wants us to do more. And I believe God can take what we already have. Let me tell you what we already have besides wonderful people. 
we have the right foundation. We trust in God's Word, and I teach God's Word, and I'm not the only teacher here. We teach His Word, we love His Word, and we love one another. That's the foundation that we need. God can take that and feed the thousands in our community with His Word. I believe He can do that. I'm trusting He's going to do that. What's your impossible? Whatever your impossible is, God can take what you already have and he can make it happen. He can do it. It begins with what you have. Verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, and the men sat down, 5,000 in number. So I want to kind of clarify that. We always say he fed 5,000 people. He probably fed more like 10,000 people. It was 5,000 men. There were women and children that were there as well. So we could at least say probably double that, 10,000. Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. This is the best part. God didn't provide a little like Philip suggested $40,000 could purchase. God provided the biggest meal these people had seen in a very long time. Which reminds me of Ephesians 3.20 to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ever ask or think or can even imagine according to the power that is at work within us. God's plan is bigger than you can imagine. So say this with me. God, go big. God, go big, man. That has got to be our prayer. Because God doesn't do minimums. God goes big. So whatever your impossible is, God can go above and beyond that. Exceedingly, abundantly greater. And he did it. He fed these people the biggest meal they've had in a long time. Verse 12, they they had eaten their fill. He told his disciples, now go and gather up the leftovers so nothing will be lost. They gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they wanted to make him a king. Perceiving that, they were going to force him to be a king, Jesus withdrew himself because this is the year of opposition. This is the year that he ends up going to the cross. So we finish this miracle with the disciples gathering up these fragments. Our family was talking about this uh, a while back, a couple weeks ago, and we wondered where he got the baskets. Where did the disciples find 12 baskets? The truth is, the men carried a bag. Not a purse. A man's bag. A backpack, if you want to be more culturally relevant. In that backpack, these disciples would have carried everything they need. You know, I would have had fishing gear in there. I would have had, you know, something sweet. My daughter loves to bake for dad. And so, yeah, you got all the things that you need in your bag. And the, the baskets were the disciples' man bags, and they filled them up, 12 baskets for 12 disciples. Personally, I think Jesus wanted them to have that bread in their bag 
because the next day he would teach, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Imagine the next day after what Jesus had done, the disciples are sitting down in Jesus' teaching, and they're like, man, I'm kind of hungry. Stomach is grumbling, and they start reaching their bag, and they start eating that bread that was left over from, from when he fed the 5,000, and then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And you know he looked right at them, so they got it. I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. The manna. Amazing. So what's your impossible? Let me recap the three things that you need to know. God already has the plan. He will use whatever you have. And his plan is much bigger than you can imagine. Now you know that, but will you apply it to your life? Will you apply it to your situation, whatever your impossible is? If you don't have an impossible right now, soon you will. That's how life goes. And you can respond like the disciples did. You can search for a man-made solution. You can say, oh, I got this. I can figure this out on my own. Or you can trust him. And honestly, this is how Philip should have responded. This is how the disciples should have responded to Jesus when he tested their faith. When he said to them, how will we feed these people? They should have said, you know, Jesus... That's a really great question. How can we feed all these people? Honestly, we have no idea. Impossible for us to do, but we've seen you do miracles. And we believe you can do it again. And frankly, Jesus, I'm really excited to see what you're about to do. Because we've not seen anything like this before. We have no idea. But we're pretty excited. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is going to be great. And by the way, we're here to help. How can we help? How can we join you in what you're about to do? That's how we should respond when we face our impossible situations. I know that's not easy. I don't know what your situation is. I know it's a difficult one. I know what my difficult situations are. I know what my impossible situations are. But if we trust God, if we say to him, I I don't know, I don't know the plan, but you do. You do know the plan. And you're going to take whatever I have, whatever is available, you're going to use that. And you're going to do something much bigger than I could ever imagine. So God, go big. You do it. Do it in my life. That's our prayer. Let that be your prayer. As we sing this final song, you're going to hear the words, and I hope it sticks in your mind, because whatever God does, here in the word of God, he can do it again. He will do it again. Are we ready, team, to play our final song? Let me pray for you. If if at this, uh, during this song, if you feel the need to come forward, just simply to, to kneel down on these steps and just tell God, This is impossible. I just need you to take care of this. If you need to just come up here and let this be your altar and and pray, if you need someone in our church to pray for you, we have some in our prayer team that will gladly pray with you.
they'll stand off to the side. If you want prayer from them, just go, go see them. But this is the time during this song to, to keep worshiping and, and just hand it over to God and trust God. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for doing this miracle. Thank you for teaching us that you're always testing us so we will know and that we will trust you more. God, it's not always comfortable when you're testing us, but we know it's for our good. And God, whatever whatever our impossible situations are, we want to hand them over to you. Let this be the day that we do that and trust you completely. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.